visitors, <clears throat> although you may have come here as tourists, we welcome you as pilgrims. At this beginning stage, allow us to develop certain, an understanding of certain basic points before going on. First of all, we'd like to express our happiness that you have come here in this way, namely in search of Dhamma. Second, let us thank all of you for giving us an opportunity to use time in a beneficial way. You don't have to thank us. Rather, we want to thank you because you have given me an opportunity to do something useful with my time. Further, all of you will help the, this Dhamma, which is truly useful, to spread more quickly through the world. As for this thing we call Dhamma, it's the thing that will be of the greatest benefit, will be most helpful and useful in our lives. Next, we'd like to spend a little time considering why it is we choose to speak at 5 a.m. Um, on the personal level, this is the only time of day that I have much energy and strength to speak. And then, as for you, this is a time when your minds are most open and ready to listen. So, the rest of the day, I'm quite weak, don't have much energy. So, this is a good time for me. It's also a good time for you. Well, the majority of people use this time in order to find a little happiness and pleasure from sleeping. We use this time for the highest kind of study there is in life. This time just before dawn is the time when the Buddha awakened to, to Buddhahood. And in nature, this is the time when many flowers are blooming, are opening up. Either now they're either starting to open or they're getting ready to open. Another way of looking at it, which is a bit teasing, is to say that this is the time of day when your teacups aren't yet overflowing. There's still room to bring in something new. There's some space in the mind for something new and different, unlike later in the day when our teacups are filled to the top and anything new just overflows and is wasted. If you study this carefully, you'll notice that the world of 5 a.m. has certain special qualities about it. 
this special world of 5 a.m. is a time that's very naturally and easily useful. And so let's make the most of this special world of 5 a.m. And now there are some miscellaneous matters to, to discuss. First of all, for the time that you've come to stay with us while you're resting here along your journey, we ask that you use this time as a kind of training for, use it for training yourself, especially to train yourself in being as close and intimate with nature as possible. What we mean is that you must live in the most simple and plain way as possible. When your way of living is very simple and ordinary, very plain, then this will help you to be close to nature. However, this, this plain living requires a certain amount of self-discipline. To live in the most simple and plain way requires quite a bit of self-discipline on our own part. For this self-discipline, there's necessary that we have some structure, a bit of order, or even some rules. The bhikkhus, the men who have shaved their head and put on the robes to follow the Buddha's example. They, these bhikkhus, they have quite a few rules which they voluntarily undertake for the purpose of self-discipline. And then Buddhist laymen, Buddhist laywomen also take on a certain kind of structure and discipline which can be written down in rules for easy access. This, this is a very useful practice if we use it wisely. So, when you, as you are living here, please exercise self-control. Control yourselves within the, the discipline that we have developed here through experimentation and adaptation to this kind of retreat situation. Please exercise self-control within the discipline that is requested of everyone. In eating, in resting, in working, in our meeting together, and all the other things that we do, please, please live and do these things in the way that is most correct and fit for the study and practice of Dhamma. Control oneself in a way where one's living is correct in terms of our study and investigation of Dhamma. The lesson that can't be avoided which is very crucial here, whether you see it as a kind of self-control or however, is the lesson of doing everything with sunyata, 
doing everything in voidness. What this means is whatever it is you need to do, waking up, going to the bathroom, um, eating, walking, sitting, and most of all meditating, whatever it is you do, do it in voidness. Do it free of the of ego. Whatever we do, there's no need to drag ego into it, to label our activities as me, me, mine, mine, but to do all things, to live throughout the day in voidness, in sunyata, the mind where we're not labeling and discriminating things in terms of self, in terms of me. This, this lesson is the, what you could call the highest form of self-control. The reason for this lesson is so that we use all of our time throughout the entire day as study, as learning. What we want to do is make all of life our classroom so that we never leave the classroom, so that we're always learning and becoming wiser. So even in the morning on your walk over from the meditation center to Suanmok, we want that to be a kind of lesson. It's a classroom the whole way that you're walking here. As we, as, because when we are investigating the lesson of voidness, even while walking, then every moment is learning. We call this walking sunyata or void walking, walking voidness. And the meaning is that the whole time that we are walking, the mind is void or free from, from ego. To walk without an ego, without any self, any me, but just to walk in a totally, in a fully alive and natural way without the clutter and confusion of me and ego. There's just lifting the feet and stepping, lifting and stepping, the legs moving naturally with a natural grace and skill, which doesn't require any me, any ego. So we practice this lesson of void walking. There's merely the natural movements of the body, the body moving according to certain impulses and the, the response to the situation. There's just this natural movement of walking. There aren't <coughs> any thoughts or any concepts of me, of self, of ego, which is purely natural walking in this walking voidness. Whether you're standing or sitting, eating, defecating or whatever, all of these are just natural movements of the body. Let them be just that, just simple natural 
movements without adding any ego, any me, whether here or at the meditation center. This is all we need to practice, breathing, standing, sitting, walking, eating, just with, as natural movements of the body without any me, without any self. We can call this the Buddhist way of life, to live always in, in or with through this voidness where there's life fully awake and responsive, but there's no ego, no me. This, to live in this voidness, we can call the Buddhist way of life. Now, when we speak of a way of life, then it's necessary to understand what life is. We need to understand this adequately or we can even say, as much as possible. Now this word life can be given different explanations and meanings, which can be ambiguous or even confusing. So let's take a little time to explore the, the meaning and the usefulness of this word life. What is life? There are two basic meanings to life. One meaning is that life is something borrowed from nature. We can see life as something which nature has lent to us to be developed and used as skillfully as possible. Another meaning is to see life as something that happens of and by itself. Life just happens. This is another way to, to look at it. So either life as something borrowed for, from nature or as something that happens in and of itself. The Buddhist understands that life is something borrowed from nature or that nature has lent to us in order that we can develop it in the way we feel is best and most useful. And that we are, and the Buddhist also is always ready to return life to its source, to, to hand it back to nature. Always the Buddhist is ready to allow life to return to, to nature, to its owner. There's no need to cling to it as being me or mine. Others might not see life as something borrowed, but may see life as some kind of existence or being in itself. However people want to look at it is their prerogative, their privilege. But the important thing is that whichever way we look at life, we have some way to let go of it, to stop clinging to it as being me and mine. Now when we 
see life as being something borrowed, then it's necessary for us to be very honest about this fact. If life has been lent to us, then we should not go and appropriate it. We must avoid being corrupt and deceitful. We all know what it's like, how some people, when they borrow something, after a while they start to pretend it's their own, and they find ways to avoid giving it back to the rightful owner. We must do the same with life. Do not appropriate it in a corrupt and dishonest way. But see by, which means to not go and seize it as being me or mine. Life lends us, or nature lends us life in order that life can be developed. And nature doesn't charge any interest or doesn't force us to, to bribe, to pay a bribe to get the loan in the first place. It's an interest-free loan, no strings attached. As long as we don't renege on the, the loan, we don't default on our loan by taking, by going and claiming that this is me, this is mine. And then we can develop life to the highest level. We can make the most out of this loan from nature. And so this lesson uh, while walking over from the center is to practice just this point, to walk as a life that is borrowed, to recognize with every step that life is borrowed, that we're not the owner. We're just borrowing it to make use of it. And so every step and every breath while we walk is void of me, void of ego. There's just void walking, walking in voidness. And it's the same with standing, sitting, bathing, eating, defecating, and all the other necessary and natural activities of life. <clears throat> Studying this lesson that life is borrowed, that there's no, there's no me, no mind involved. Whenever we take life to be me or mine, then we are dishonest. We become corrupt. We become thieves, criminals even. But whenever we don't take life to be mine, whenever there is just life, and there's no me or mine attached to it, then we are honest, upright, honest, decent human beings. Now we'll consider what it is that has been borrowed. According to the Buddha's teaching, what we have borrowed are 
elements. The Pali word is datu. In Thai, it's pronounced ha, which can be translated as natural elements. This is what has been borrowed. There's the earth element, the water element, the wind element, and the fire element. There is space element, and there is consciousness element. <clears throat> These six elements are what have been borrowed from nature. The earth element is the element which takes up space, the element which has area and dimensions. So it's the basic structure or foundation on which the other elements um, act. The water element is the element that holds things together. It's what connects and holds things together, so it's often called cohesion. The water element is this cohesiveness that holds things together, especially which holds the earth element together. The fire element is the element of combustion. You can even say of well, it's a kind of burning or the combustion. And it's through this combustion that change is possible. This allows new things to develop. This is the element of fire. No matter what the temperature of the fire element, it always has the quality of burning, of combustion. If there's a high temperature, then there's a lot of combustion. If there's a low temperature, then there's a little combustion. But even the lowest temperature, there is still some combustion. This quality of burning, of combustion, is always present in the fire element. And then there's the wind element. The wind element is the element that spreads or expands. You can call it the element of expansion. Just like gases, gases have this movement within them, this constant expansion against their container. And so the wind element is like a gas, which is this quality of expansion. And through this all, there is, in this there is constant movement. This is the element that makes movement possible. The wind element is the element of expansion and movement. These first four elements are the physical structure of, of life. Next is the fifth element, which is called akasa datu, or the space element. For the first four elements to exist, there must be space to receive them. This, this space 
in which the other elements can manifest and exist is the fifth element, the space element. It's the kind of the opening or the, the free space that allows the other elements to manifest. Most people don't think that emptiness has any value or that space is of any value. This is very, very narrow and foolish thinking. In fact, space or emptiness has tremendous value. For example, to sit on the bench, it has to be empty. The bench is of no value to you unless it is empty. That's only because there is space. There's some free space, can you make use of the bench? Or a glass. If a glass didn't have some emptiness, what good is it for you? It's of no value as a glass. You can't put water into it, you can't drink out of it. But it's only when there is space that things can have value for us. So the person who looks at things more carefully recognizes that space has incredible value. If you look well, you'll see that without space there would be no world. This world, all of this existence, can only exist because of space. If there wasn't any space, where would you sit? How could you eat? How could you breathe? It's only through space that everything can happen. It's the container of all the other elements. The sixth element is called Vijnana Datu, the element of consciousness. This is the element, this element is not physical like the first four. You can call it the mental element or even the spiritual element. Rather than being something physical, something that is known or is experienced, it's the element which knows things. Vijnana means to know clearly, to know distinctly, to be conscious of something. So this element of being conscious is the element that allows us to experience, to, to feel, to know things. This is where only through consciousness element is experience possible. So the elements come in three sets or groups. The first four elements are the physical elements, the material elements. And then the last one is the spiritual element. And then the fifth, the space element, this you can't call, you, can, you can't call it physical and you can't call it spiritual. 
it's we it's we can't discriminate it one way or the other and so this is the third element when because it depends on what it's serving if it's serving the physical elements or the spiritual elements so we we don't discriminate it either way so these six elements are life you can say that we borrow these six elements from nature or you can say that we borrow life from nature altogether these are the things that we we borrow and the buddhist is always studying and being aware of this this fact that life is are just these six elements which have been borrowed from nature now there are some people that feel that these elements that life belongs to itself rather than seeing life as borrowed from nature life is seen as its own life belonging to life existing in and through life now what you should consider is which of these two approaches is of most benefit in terms of first morality which way of looking at life will allow us to have the morality which will bring peace to the world a real kind of morality will result in peace amongst people and between humans and the rest of the world <clears throat> and then on the second level which way of looking at life will lead to the understanding of truth on the highest level the kind of understanding that will free us will free mind from all dukkha from all suffering and entrapment so on one one side is to understand life as borrowed from nature and on the other is to understand life as something that belongs to itself exists in itself now we don't need to try and judge or compare which is right which is wrong which is true and which is false that's not important all we need to ask is which is most useful which which way of looking at life will allow us to be free to be free on the highest spiritual level seeing life as borrowed from nature or seeing life as something that belongs to itself whichever way we look at it will have its consequences and will will lead to a different way of thinking about life we should consider then which which way of viewing life will enable us to be free and of of dukkha you are completely free to choose whichever approach you prefer 
Um, I am not trying to force you or compel you or even beg you to choose one way over the other. Now, as we said, Buddhists look at it from the perspective that life is something borrowed. And this is something that I can explain and discuss in many ways, how the way of life that follows from such a perspective. But this doesn't mean that you have to agree with this or whatever. We don't really care which, which way you look at it. That's up to you, whatever you prefer. Since we follow the approach that of seeing life as something borrowed from nature, we'll then continue to discuss and think about life in that way, since this is the way we use. So we'll be considering life, when life is something that is borrowed from nature, then how can we develop it? How are we to develop life so that it's most useful, so that we get the best benefits from life? Or so we, we can say so that life is correct. What is the, the most correct benefits to receive from this life which is borrowed? If you view life as something which is borrowed, then you're coming here, coming to the meditation center, then is to learn how to investigate how to develop this life. What is the best way, the most efficient way to develop life so that it is both correct and in time? If your developing is too slow, you'll die before you get anywhere. And so our development must be efficient enough so it's, it brings results while we're still breathing. Now you have the freedom to choose whether you will take life as something borrowed or something that belongs to itself, that is its own. But we want, there's one other fact we want you to be aware of. If you decide incorrectly or if you choose wrong, then life will bite you. Like you won't be able to develop life, you won't be able to do much with it, and it will bite you. So be very careful how you choose. So consider in the most free and independent way, right now is, is your life being bitten? Right now is life being bitten or is it, or is it free of something that you would call biting? An easy test is to ask yourself, is love biting? Or have you ever been bitten by love? How much has love bitten you in the past? Is anger biting you? 
Have you ever been bitten by anger? Does hatred bite? How many times have you been bitten by hatred? How does this burn and scorch one? Does fear, and we mean foolish, ignorant fear, does this bite? Have you ever been bitten by this before, by fear? Then what about excitement? How many times have you been bitten by excitement? But still we love to find excitement, to search for adventure and excitement so that it can bite us. Have you ever looked at excitement in this way before? Have you looked at excitement as, as something which bites? Does it bite you? What about anxiety and worry about the future? Wishing, hoping, and being anxious about things that haven't happened. Does this ever bite you? Are we able to work in a way that there's no worry or anxiousness about the future? Can you do this? Can you work so there's absolutely no worry? Can we live in a way that we don't need hope or wishing, but instead live with mindfulness and understanding? Can we live with mindfulness and wisdom? rather than with hopes and wishes. <clears throat> Eventually you can see for yourself whether worry and anxiety about the future bites and how often and how hard it has bitten us already. Next is longing after the past, missing things and not being able to get them out of your mind past things that you just can't leave alone, you're stuck on them, longing after them. Does this, does this bite? These things which have passed, which are behind us, we don't really want to drag them around with us, but we're unable to forget them. They're, they've bound themselves to us. Does having to drag all these all this past along with us, does that bite? Another one which is particularly wicked and harmful is envy. Envy where we, we don't want others to be as good as us. Or we don't even want them to be good at all. We, anybody who does anything as good as or better than us, we envy them. We don't want them to develop we don't want them to, to be better or even to be happy. This kind of destructive thinking, always wanting the worst for others, is envy. Has it ever bitten you? If this world had no envy, this world would have no wars. Is this true? Look right here, look, look at oneself. When we're envious, 
of someone. Who does it bite? The other person doesn't even know. The envy doesn't bother them, but it's biting our heart all the time. The next is jealousy or possessiveness. You've got something and you're jealous of it. You don't want anyone else to use it. You've got something and you're afraid your friends might ask to borrow or they, you know, somebody might want to share it. This stinginess or miserliness of, this is jealousy. In Thai, this ordinary kind of jealous possessiveness is called huong. But there's another word, hung, which is this jealousy and possessiveness about the opposite sex. So we could call it sexual jealousy. The way you feel about your husband, wife, or your lover, your boyfriend or girlfriend. You don't want another man to look at your wife or even think about your wife. You don't want another woman to even get near your husband. If he smiles at somebody, you, you want to kill somebody. It's either her or him. People actually go around killing each other because of this sexual jealousy. And still it doesn't go away. Now, you might think of better words for describing these things that we're talking about. We're using words that occur to us. But you need to examine these things for yourself and then choose the words that suit your own experience and understanding. But we'll review them and you can consider how they bite. The first is love which is foolish, love which is blind. Second is anger. With this one we don't have to specify that it comes from stupidity because everybody knows that anger is always stupid. Third is hatred. Fourth, fear. Fifth, excitement. Sixth, worry about the future. Seventh is longing after, always remembering the past. Eight is envy. Nine is ordinary jealousy. And ten is this special sexual jealousy and possessiveness. There are a whole lot more, but these ten are enough to get the picture. Consider these things well. Do they bite you? Have you ever been bitten by these, these ten examples and they're the other things like them? The life which isn't properly developed will get bitten by these things over and over again. Therefore, develop mean, development means to make life so that it never gets bit. And now we're going to consider with what are we going to develop life with? 
What are we going to use to develop life? When you came here, were you looking for something with which to develop life? So when asking ourselves, what are we going to use to develop life? If we give a short, concise, precise, simple, straightforward answer, there's just one word, Dhamma. Dhamma is the only thing we need to develop life. Dhamma has so many meanings that we could never list them all. We probably couldn't even count them. But right now we only need one meaning, the one most appropriate for the situation. And this is that Dhamma is the correctness, the appropriateness, the fitness for developing life. Dhamma is to be correct, to be fit, perfectly fit for developing life or for making life free of dukkha. A while back, some scholars in England, especially the ones who were trying to translate the Buddhist scriptures, tried to find the best translation for Dhamma. They had the idea that every word had to be translated into English. They ended up with 38 different translations for the word Dhamma, and then they still weren't finished or certain which was the best one. It's not even worth the trouble of translating. Don't, it's better not to translate it. Just the word Dhamma. This ancient Indian word is better left untranslated, but slowly come to understand its different meanings, all its different aspects. Now we ought to use the most precise and clear term that we can find. And the one that I would like to recommend is the term Buddha Dhamma. Buddha Dhamma, the Dhamma of the ones who know. Buddha means the knowing, the being awake. And so this is the Dhamma of being awake of knowing things as they really are. This is more precise and clear than just Dhamma, to use the term Buddha Dhamma. But most of you are used to the word Buddhism. We, however, don't like this word, this ism. This ism has a smell of being some kind of philosophy or of depending on some authorities or holy books or priests or something. So we don't like this word ism, this ism. It's not a very nice or attractive word. We think the word Buddha Dhamma is much more attractive and lovable. Some people like the term Buddha Sasana the religion of the Buddha. But this term is kind of, it's a little too vague, it kind of 
spreads a little too far, gets into things that really aren't of much value to us. The word Buddha Dhamma is, sticks with the essentials, with the basics. Now, Buddha Dhamma can come in the form of what you study, what you learn and then study, which is called Bariyati Dhamma. It also comes in the form of what you commit to, the thing that one commits to and so, and so practices that which we incorporate more and more fully into our life, which is called Bhati-Bhati Dhamma, Bhati-Bhati Dhamma. And then also Buddha Dhamma comes in the form of that which is realized, that which we come to know more and more deeply through our own direct, immediate experience, which is called Bhati Veda Dhamma. So Buddha Dhamma comes in these three forms, the form that is studied, the form that is committed to and incorporated into our life, and the form that is realized through immediate experience. Over at the center, you can, you can meet with all three forms of Buddha Dhamma. They're the times when your instructors are teaching you about the Dhamma. And so then it's, you meet with the Dhamma that we study, that we learn about. And then there are the other times where you take what you've heard and you put it into practice you start to bring it into your own reality to make it live. And that's that aspect. And then there are the times when you, you realize that life is more cool, more peaceful. So the realization aspect of Buddha Dhamma is there. You can discover all three of these aspects. Buddha Dhamma that is studied, that is put into practice and that is realized. In one day, you can cover all three of them. Now we'll settle on one meaning of Dhamma. Dhamma is the fitness, the correctness, needed for developing life. In order to de develop life in the most useful, in the most beautiful way, there's a, a properness or appropriateness, a fitness that is required. This is what we mean by Dhamma. We'd like to use one other term, which is even more clear and a little gives us a somewhat different perspective on Dhamma. And we'll say it in English so that the translator doesn't get it wrong. Dhamma is gentle healing for spiritual disease. Dhamma is this, that which heals, but it's not a violent or combative 
kind of healing. It's a very natural and gentle healing, not for the body but for the spirit. All of us are, all this biting that we keep going through is spiritual illness. And Dhamma, which is what will heal in a very gentle, loving way, all those wounds, all those teeth marks all over our spirit. When we say gentle, we mean also that it's sometimes so subtle, so refined, that you may not even be aware that it's healing you. This gentleness of the Dhamma is that it operates in such a subtle way that the healing process isn't some big commotion. It's not a big to-do that, you know, lights going off and visions and all that. But the Dhamma that heals us does so so gently that we're often not even aware of it. But if we watch, we notice that a process of healing is taking place. In the Dhamma is this very refined, subtle, delicate, gentle thing which is doing the healing. There are some people that think Dhamma is worthless, it doesn't do anything because they haven't noticed this point which we've just made. They haven't understood the subtlety in which Dhamma works and so they think that Dhamma doesn't do anything. But the one who has observed this sees that Dhamma is the most important thing, the most valuable thing and it works in the most marvelous way. Consider that there are many kinds of disease, that there are different levels of disease. There's physical disease and to cure it you go to the, the ordinary hospitals or to your doctor. If there's mental disease then you go to the mental hospital or you go to see a shrink or psychotherapist. And then for spiritual disease you go to the Buddha's hospital you go to the Buddha to get cured. And further, if there's no more, or further, one should see that when there is spiritual disease, it leads to a lot of physical and mental disease. A lot of our mental and physical problems are rooted in spiritual disease. When there's no spiritual disease, there's just about no physical and mental disease. It, they're almost non-existent once we're free of the spiritual disease. Our accidents in the street, especially our car accidents, are due to our own carelessness our own busyness, 
these seemingly purely physical problems are really rooted in our own carelessness, our own confusion. If there was no spiritual disease, there would be hardly any of these physical accidents. Only a few of our car accidents happen because of just freak malfunction of the cars. But it's always our carelessness, not taking proper care, driving with bad manners, being in a hurry, drinking, and all the other forms of stupidity and carelessness. This is why so many people are killed on the highways. And then all the neuroses and psychoses, all the mental diseases, these come from the fact that our way of looking at life gets more and more twisted, more and more confused, more perverted. The more, the more we look at the world in a confused and distorted way, the more mental illness, mental disease there is. More than, more than that, physical illness and mental illness, these don't, you know, these, they come and they go. There are long periods of time when we're, we're both physically and mentally healthy. But spiritually, we're always sick. You could say that every second of life, we are spiritually sick until we really start to understand Dhamma. Until we start to get clear about Dhamma, we're sick just about every second of our life. Now let's ask then, what is the cause? What is the source of this spiritual disease? The, the fundamental source of spiritual disease is our own stupidity. The ignorance, the misunderstanding that there is self. All of us think, believe, understand that there is self and there are things of self. And this fundamental stupidity is the source of all of our spiritual illness. Once there is, because of this ignorance, there arises self, ego, me. And because of this me, there is selfishness. And as soon as there is selfishness, it bites. All that biting is just the selfishness of me, which comes from our ignorance. We don't recognize that there's no self. And so we go grabbing onto things as self, we get selfish, and this selfishness bites us. This is where the spiritual disease comes from. Now is this thing we call me, this feeling, what, this concept we, we call me or self, this is something totally new. 
Some people think that me or the self exists all the time. Most people think that there's this me that is existing all the time. But that's an illusion. In fact, me, this concept, this feeling, is something that just happens like that momentarily and then it goes away and then another one happens but it's always a new one totally different so this me is always something new and this me and mine self and of self this happens because of our foolishness towards the things we call positive and negative. There's these things that we think are positive and because we're careless and stupid about these positive things, there's me, me gets born. Then there are the things we think are negative and then because of that stupidity, another me gets born. And then the self, selfishness, and it bites. Now once we, whenever we are unaware that self is just an illusion, it's just a kind of confused thought in the mind, whenever we're unaware of this, whenever we forget this, then we'll react to positive and negative and me gets born again and the me creates selfishness and bites us and thereby all the problems of our lives occur but whenever there is we stop forgetting whenever we are no longer blind in this way whenever there's the awareness that things are not self that in fact things are not me not mine whenever this there is this fundamental awareness of life then the self doesn't happen there's no me then there's no selfishness and there's no biting there's nothing that bites the mind and there's nothing to get bit the ancestors of humanity used to be very intelligent but we modern generations have forgotten all that and have become quite stupid the ancestors of humanity even back to the beginnings of historical times have evidenced great wisdom which we nowadays totally ignore in our stupidity for example in the old testament of the the bible at the very beginning there's a story which probably comes from the very beginning of history which happened first in the middle east there's the story where god warns adam and eve not to eat the fruit of the tree of good and evil there's the the apple now it's become the apple but there's there's this tree with a fruit 
And if you eat the fruit, you know good and evil. And the first thing God ever said to humanity is don't eat that fruit because you'll attach to good and evil. And by attaching to good and evil, you will die. These are the very first words of God. But we don't listen. We eat the fruit, we attach to good and evil, and we die. We keep dying over and over again because we ignore this ancient wisdom. There was a time when this was known and understood. And it's, the story is still there in the, in the Bible, although nobody takes it seriously anymore. To speak in a more scientific or evolutionary way, we can explain the story a little differently. That human beings first started to have the problem of dukkha, when they started to discriminate the positive from the negative. Up until that time, human beings weren't making all this spiritual fuss and problem out of life. But when they first learned to discriminate good, evil, right, wrong, positive, negative, this is where the problem of dukkha, of this biting, first occurred. So you can see how the Old Testament totally undercuts selfishness. It severs the roots of selfishness by going right to the source and preventing the ignorance that leads to me, to self. And so this totally undercuts selfishness which is a much more skillful and powerful way of dealing with the problem of dukkha. It's much better than always having to control selfishness, as is done in the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is merely to love others. And this loving others, the most that that can do is control selfishness which isn't bad, but it's not as effective and powerful as the Old Testament of the Jews that goes to the basic source of the problem by eliminating the attachment which creates self in the first place. The reason we've been talking about this is because we understand that most of you come from Christian backgrounds. If you yourselves aren't Christian, then at least your parents are probably Christian, or if not, then Jewish. And so we've tried to point out how the, the origins of Christianity and the, the oldest message, the first real teaching of the, the Old Testament, is the same as the teaching of the Buddha, of Buddha Dhamma, that there's nothing worth attaching to as me or mine. 
that don't fall for positive and negative. Don't get trapped in positive and negative. Don't become the slaves of positive and negative. As soon as we fall for positive and negative, we get trapped in it. As soon as you start, you think positive and negative, you get trapped mm. in that thought. And then out of that entrapment, there is ego, there is self, there is selfishness, and all dukkha. But when we understand the message of Buddha Dhamma, of the of God's first first words to humanity, then we don't fall for the positive and the negative, and the problems cease. So we suggest that you go back and study the Old Testament again. How. God warned Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of that tree. That if we eat the fruit of that tree, then we get trapped in good and evil. And then the, the penalty of that is death. But of course this is a myth. And so the meaning is spiritual death. Because Adam and Eve, they didn't die physically but they kept dying spiritually. But if we understand this story <clears throat> and put it into practice, then we don't fall for positive and negative. We don't fall for good and evil. We don't get lost in sin and virtue. And then one is free. So we we recommend that you <clears throat> relearn this story. This story shows that once humanity was very intelligent, but the descendants of those intelligent people have become rather foolish, even stupid. The message here then is that we've got to <clears throat> we've got a very important lesson to learn so that we can recover the intelligence of our ancestors. Another example of this wisdom of our ancestors is in China. Lao Tzu, who taught the founder of what's later become known as Taoism, although it was originally just called the Way. And Lao Tzu taught that we, one shouldn't attach to yin and yang. If you go and cling to yin and yang as being this or being that, then you get trapped in them. And then you are out of harmony with the eternal Tao. But when one has this wisdom and you don't mess around with yin and yang, then there are no problems. Not only was this taught in the Middle East, but it was taught in China and in other places as well. But we've ignored this message. We think it's old-fashioned and out of date. It's not nearly as impressive as all our modern little toys, which, which we're so infatuated. And so then we have the world that we, we have here.
with all its wars and violence. So in short, instead of worshipping and cherishing positive and negative, kill it. Instead of just worshipping this positive and negative, kill it, get rid of it, destroy it, and be free for once and for all. But now you spend so much time worshipping the positive that you can't kill it, and so it's killing you. This was understood thousands of years ago in the Middle East by the Jews, by in China, by the early Buddhists, and by many others. This is the message. Rather than worshipping positive and negative, kill them. At Christmas and New Year's, we wish everybody that they'll be happy and well and this and that. We wish them merriness and happiness and that they'll be better and better and get all their wishes that they want. And so all we're doing is making our friends more and more stupid. We're just wishing that people will suffer more and more. Because the more they get trapped in this thinking of happiness and good and better and more and more and fulfilling their wishes and all that, the more they get trapped in self, in selfishness, and in suffering. So stop making your friends stupid. So in short, don't get trapped by positive and negative. Don't worship, don't fall for positive and negative, and then you'll be free. This is the gentle healing of the spiritual disease. There's nothing violent about this. All one has to do is stop worshipping the positive and negative, stop falling for the positive and negative, and then one will be healed in the most gentle and natural way. When we are no longer trapped and enslaved by the power of positive and negative, then we can develop life to its highest potential. Then life will be truly useful and peaceful. When we free life of this terrible baggage of, of the ego created out of positive and negative, then life is peaceful, and out of that peacefulness life can be made truly useful. This is what it means to develop life. There's much more to be said about this, which we'll have to save for an, another opportunity. But today we've wanted to make it very clear that all you've got to do is stop falling for 
positive and negative. Those of you who are Christians have heard of the term original sin. The original sin was simply falling for the positive and the negative, attaching to good and evil. And out of this original sin, all the suffering of humanity has followed. And it's, and it's constantly recreated in each of us to our own ignorance. But in all the religions that were ever intelligent, you can find this same message. Don't get trapped in good and evil, in positive and negative, in sin and virtue, whether in the old Jewish teaching or in the Taoist approach, in Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever, in all the religions that were ever intelligent, you will find this message. According to your registration, your passports, your government um, identity cards, you will be Christian or Jewish or Taoist or Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or something. But it's better in reality just to be above and beyond positive and negative. According to your documents, you may be Buddhist or Christian or something. But what matters is that in our hearts, we are beyond positive and negative. It's okay if we call ourselves Christian or Jewish or Buddhist, Hindu or whatever. But understand that emancipation for all of us is the same, no matter what we call ourselves. Real emancipation comes about solely through no longer clinging to positive and negative. When we escape from the bondage of positive and negative, that is the meaning of emancipation, of salvation for all of us. <clears throat> Last of all, we'd like to thank you for being good listeners. So thank you very much. We hope that you have been able to use this time effectively and beneficially and able to help you really get somewhere in life. Thank you. We'll close the meeting for this morning and we'll see you again tomorrow morning.